This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester. We invite you to listen in as we talk with both academics and practitioners about their approaches to peace building and conflict transformation, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. Well, welcome to this podcast from the Winchester Centre for Religion, Reconciliation, and Peace. I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by Sarah Snyder, Canon Sarah Snyder, I think it is, isn't it? Um, who is the founding director of a fascinating initiative called the Rose Castle Foundation in Cumbria, in England. Um, we go back some way because you were involved in scriptural reasoning at Cambridge Interfaith Programme, where I had some connections, and our paths have crossed a number of times, I think. But it's very nice to have the chance to sit down and just have a good natter with you. So I think, uh, uh, Sarah, a really good place to start. Just tell us a little bit about how Rose Castle in its current form, the foundation, how that came into being. Simon, lovely to see you again. And uh, it, it, the story of Rose Castle is really a story that goes back to the days when I was in Cambridge and I was working with Cambridge Interfaith Programme. And as a family, we uh, moved to the Lake District. And unbeknown to us, the very week we moved was the week that Rose Castle became empty for the first time in 800 years, uh, having been home to the bishops of the Northwest, the bishops of Carlisle throughout that time. Um, because of the, the length of time it had been here, it had been home to Catholic bishops, home to Anglican bishops. Um, it's actually sat in Scotland and it's sat in England. It's been fought over and ransacked and it's actually got a moat right around it and big fortified walls. Um, and when we arrived, the, the, the now bishop said, uh, Sarah, what would you do with this castle? It's become empty uh, and we were going to sell it, but the people of Cumbria aren't that keen on, on it being sold. Um, and, and rather flippantly at the time, I said, well, given that it was built to withstand the enemy, who were the Scots most of the time, why don't we uh, think about turning it on its head, turning history on its head metaphorically and reopening it as a place that um, seeks to unite enemies rather than resist them. And it's also been a house of prayer throughout the whole of that time. It's got a beautiful chapel at the heart of it. So why don't we make it a place of prayer for recon reconciliation? Um, and that's when the idea was started. The bishop was rather clever and said, great idea, go and make it happen. <laughs> so. Uh, so what happened, actually, in a nutshell, was the castle um, was sold eventually by the church commissioners. It was actually sold to a company who um, are responsible for its refurbishment and maintenance, but who uh, bought it because they really um, uh, agreed with the principles and ethos of, of, of our work of reconciliation. And we still work from the grounds and we book rooms at the castle whenever we have programmes. So. Um, so the castle itself is really a symbol of peace and reconciliation um, because it sits in the midst of contested territory and because it has witnessed conflict, plenty of it, um, as well as witnessing a lot of um, uh, wonderful convenings and unitings of people across divides. 
That's that's fascinating, and I <clears throat> I'm pleased to hear that you don't have responsibility for the fabric and the running of the yeah. place because that would be a huge resp uh, undertaking, yeah. wouldn't it? So 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 you mentioned that um, you were at the Cambridge Interfaith Program when this happened. Could you say a little bit about the relationship with the Cambridge Interfaith Program and to what extent that has influenced the way Rose Castle has uh, sort of reincarnated itself? Yes, massive influence um, is the, the quick answer. Cambridge Interfaith Programme was started by Professor David Ford uh, at a time that I was still doing graduate studies in Cambridge. And uh, he, he set up Cambridge Interfaith Programme to bring together Abrahamic leaders around scripture, um, recognising that actually religion is not just the cause of violence in the world, it's actually the cause of peace building. Um, so we uh, had a practice called scriptural reasoning where we would bring together different communities around their scriptures to look at contemporary themes, any theme actually, not just violence or nonviolent communication, but any theme at all. And in the process of bringing these communities together, they would discover um, and build a respect for each other because of the shared um, religiosity, if you like, their shared commitment to scripture, even though the scriptures are very different. So. Um, the Cambridge Interfaith Programme personnel uh, moved across to Rose Castle, pretty much most of them actually. So David Ford is our chair of Rose Castle Foundation. Nadia Takolia um, works with us. She, she was a colleague there and other colleagues too. Um, and we run residential programmes along the same model as the Cambridge summer schools that we used to run. Um, and those summer schools brought together emerging leaders from the three faith communities, the Abrahamic faith communities, um, who never normally had an opportunity to meet. So we're not bringing together that kind of middle interfaithy person um, who's already doing lots of, of work across divides. We think they're great and we're happy that they're doing it, but this program is really designed for those who never normally um, leave their own community or have opportunity to engage across divides. So how do you establish contact with them? We work through the church networks for the Christians, the uh, Jewish networks for the Jews, and the Muslim networks for, for the Muslims. So very much going in through the faith-based uh, organizations. Awesome. So, so scriptural reasoning is part of the regular practice at Rose Castle. Is that right? yes. So, so yeah. I wonder, because uh, my experience of scriptural reasoning, both when I witnessed it at Cambridge uh, and when we try experimented with it as a community practice at St Ethelberger's, um, was that it required a reasonably high level of uh, scriptural literacy and a particular mental outlook, which was open to the interpretation of text, for instance, um, or certainly the, the kind of the interrelationship of text. So, and I'm wondering, you know, is how scriptural reasoning fits when you take it away from Cambridge and put it in Cumbria? <laughs> yeah, that's such an important question. Thank you. Because um, in the early days, scriptural reasoning was more of an academic exercise. Um, it, it did uh, remain within the academic context and 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 it did attract quite a lot of academic philosophers for example theologians and philosophers um, at cambridge we were really keen to see how it worked in the community so we took scriptural reasoning into prisons for example where where an average reading age would be around seven or eight so you can't deal with big chunks of text um, we took it into primary schools as well as secondary schools we took it into mosques and synagogues and churches and hospitals, we took it overseas, we took it beyond the Abrahamic to uh, 
China, for example, with Confucianist and uh, um, other, other traditions, um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Southeast Asia. Uh, so we really did expand the practice. And I think what, what we saw was that any community that is shaped by scripture is reading and hearing scripture in their own tradition. Um, and therefore they have something they can bring to the scriptural reasoning table. So we're not uh, looking for uh, deep or complex academic insights to scripture. And we're certainly not looking at some kind of middle ground where everybody arrives in a, a, a sort of false space, if you like. What we're looking for is a much better quality of listening to each other's scriptural interpretations um, and listening to one another's reading of scripture in light of a, a very practical issue like, say, fasting or raising children um, that is relevant to all present. Yeah. So what would you say is the outcome of the scriptural reasoning work? Yeah, well, one of the surprising outcomes is that you become really excited by your own scripture, which is a really nice outcome. And I think encouraging to parents who, who um, let their younger children join in a scriptural reasoning session. Um, the other outcome is that you discover scripture speaks today, doesn't just speak yesterday, God speaks through scripture. Um, and you also discover that you can disagree really well, because ultimately you don't even agree over scripture, let alone what it says. Um, and you see that disagreement played out within a faith community as well as between those faith communities. So um, in learning to disagree with scripture on the table, you actually begin to build a very deep respect for one another. And the biggest outcome is friendship. You, you form really sustainable friends for many years beyond the scriptural reasoning session. That's really interesting because it, it, there's a parallel there with some of the Bohmian dialogue stuff that I've been exploring. Bohm talks about how dialogue itself, irrespective of what is said, creates what he calls impersonal friendship. Uh, you don't necessarily know more about the individuals, but you trust them. Uh, and it feels to me yeah. that's really important. And central to that is the ability to disagree. Um, yes. And, Absolutely. And that's a skill that we really, really need to to revisit and, and develop. Uh, and I particularly with all the polarized public discourse that actually almost outlaws the interaction of ideas. You have to have a position on opinion. Uh, so so that's, it's really very exciting to see that scriptural reasoning is is becoming kind of adept at, at creating those conversations, which is really good. Yeah, and I think I think one of the other interesting things that you highlight there is that um, scriptural reasoning um, allows you to share um, from your tradition and your faith in ways that often you're not able to do to do so in a public space. Um, quite often we feel that we must leave our faith at the door when we come into a university campus, for example, um, uh, because somehow it's not relevant to start speaking from our own personal faith. And scriptural reasoning says, no, 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 we want to hear from your own personal faith. We're here and ready to listen. We may not agree, but we really want to hear. So. I think that's what's very exciting about it. So if I was to think of Rose Castle as a new space for dialogue, how accurate is that, would you say? Yeah, so the castle is a peaceful, uh, beautiful space for dialogue. Rose Castle Foundation itself is all about the people, though. Um, so we are growing a network of reconcilers who go back home and live and work in their own contexts and communities and continue to shape each other and inform each other from their places, uh, their home places, if you like. So Rosecastle Foundation is all about the reconciler network. 
but Rose Castle, the place, the castle, is an amazing symbol of what can happen in a place that has seen its its fair share of violence, but is now extremely peaceful and very beautiful. <laughs> so you use a really interesting word there, reconciler. Uh, mm. We talk about reconciliation, uh, but what is a reconciler, or who is a reconciler? I think a reconciler is someone who seeks healing for what is broken. And that might be broken relationships, that might be um, broken systems, that might be um, a break between ourselves and the environment, for example. So anywhere um, where you see brokenness, I think a reconciler is trying to seek restoration and healing. So are there particular types of people who do you think have the gifts to be reconcilers? Or is it something that anybody could do? That's such an interesting question. I, if I'm really honest, I think there are certain kinds of people who are more naturally um, gifted, skilled at reconciling. Uh, I think other people are better at negotiating. Um, other people are better arbitrating. You know, there are lots of different skill sets, but the skill set of a reconciler is someone who is a brilliant listener, um, someone who doesn't quickly jump to conclusions, someone who has quite a high degree of empathy, who knows how to step into the shoes of somebody else, um, somebody who can see the bigger picture, not just their own agenda, um, and somebody who is able to let go of their own agenda, even when it's really important to them, not because they're selling out, but actually because they recognize somebody else has an equally important agenda that they need to hear. So those are just some of the qualities of a reconciler. And we, we've actually been, been developing a whole series of habits uh, of a reconciler that are qualities we've seen over many, many years in the field uh, in brilliant reconcilers. We, they're ordinary people, many of them are women actually, and they are um, extraordinary reconcilers. So we've kind of picked out some of those habits and, and put them into a, a series of 12 just to cover a year um, of different, different qualities of a reconciler. I wanted to ask you more about those habits. It's almost like a kind of when I first saw them, it felt like the rule of Rose Castle, but it's not quite that, is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it tell me how they've, how they've evolved. Is it just by observing what makes people good at reconciliation, or, or is there a, more of a sort of theological underpinning of this? Yeah, I, I mean, the initial um, way into the habits is that we can all cultivate a, a habit of reconciliation. We can all get better, if you like, at reconciling. Um, just take the habit of curiosity, for example. You know, being curious is essential to being a reconciler. You, you, you need to have that um, constant questioning mode that says, I wonder why you're like that, or I wonder why you think that, or I wonder what prompts you to be in that space right now, or, or whatever it is. Um, but if we practice asking those kind of questions, presumably we become more curious, you know, and, that, and that's the idea of a habit. Um, but we're also applying those habits into different faith traditions because we recognize that people of faith haven't got time to develop endless habits in in every sphere of life and they want to apply habits within their faith tradition habits that make sense to them within their own tradition so we are developing a, a christian a jewish and an islamic version of these habits initially 
which we hope to give out as gifts to other people who can say, well, actually, in my tradition, whatever my tradition is, it might be atheist. This is what these habits would look like, and this is how they would be meaningful to me. So we really want that theological development or that um, worldview development, if you like. Yes, yes, that's 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 absolutely fascinating. I mean, one area that uh, that interests me about them is the extent to which kind of social psychology might be helpful in reinforcing some of those habits. So, for instance, you mentioned curiosity, and you know, the the initial work on curiosity done by Berlin uh, suggests that curiosity is actually not what quite what we think it is. That yeah. curiosity is about a, a, at some level a response to anxiety. Um, yes. uh, that actually what makes us curious is the need to find at some level something that reduces the anxiety we feel about not knowing. Uh, and yeah. it's a very interesting idea uh, to pursue through dialogue and other things. Um, similarly, for instance, if you were looking at some of the other uh, habits, uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt's work on moral foundations comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we might actually be hardwired to have certain uh, you know, preferences about the things we think are really important. Um, so the classic thing being the difference be, you know, between uh, loyalty and caring. Uh, or freedom uh, and uh, and and loyalty, for instance. I don't know if yes, you're familiar yes. with that, but, but no, um, I was about but, to write it down. No, that, yeah, well, it, it just it just feels to me there's a very interesting piece of work that we should be doing in the reconciliation field, looking at yeah. how social psychology and interpersonal psychology, various forms of psychology, can actually help us really understand what what the mechanisms are by which we can we can you know kind of where these habits come from and why they're valuable to us. So, yes, um, and I think the social psychology field is really really helpful for for thinking about habits even thinking about the the way sorry we've got a another ignore i've just got another thing coming in here that's all right we'll edit this bit out don't worry <laughs> yeah, i was going to say great hmm. there great um even the way we think about habits is really formed out of the field of social psychology because uh, we we need to reinforce again and again, and we actually need to believe in the rightness of a habit in order to for it to have any meaning in our life. Otherwise, of course, we'll we'll soon forget it. Um, yeah. So, uh, but the other thing I was going to say about uh, social psychology, you, you have forgotten it. Another interesting idea. You Don't raised. worry. Don't worry. We'll oh, this actually, one thing uh, one thing I was going to mention on the moral foundation is Jonathan Sachs' most recent book called Morality. Uh, it's quite interesting on this area too. Thank you. I shall read that. That looks really mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm, I'm interested, for instance, you know, I, I love that on the website you have your 12 habits and you can open the doors on them. It's a lo lovely way of, of uh, inspiring curiosity apart from anything else. Uh, it's, a, a bit, it's a bit like Advent all the year round. But um, <laughs> uh, one of them, for instance, is forgiveness. Uh, yeah. You know, and opening the door on forgiveness is you're opening a very big door because there are so yeah. many difficult, contentious, disputed ideas about forgiveness. But of course, each person needs to find out what it means to themselves, don't they? So yeah. I'm just wondering how, how uh, you know, for instance, you would encourage your reconcilers to go through the forgiveness door and what you might expect them to find. Yes, thank you. Do you know, we had long debates about whether to call it letting go instead of forgiveness. Um, and, and that's because many traditions um, don't have forgiveness as a concept, as, as you rightly say, that, that um, whereas letting go is a much more familiar term. 
um, but is equally difficult. So in the end, we thought, well, let's just talk about forgiveness and then different traditions can take on um, their own language and apply it in their own way. I think um, the way in to forgiveness um, is to maybe understand forgiveness as um, uh, not, um, not forgetting what has gone wrong, but actually naming what has gone wrong in order to move beyond it. Because of course, there's no recognition of forgiveness being needed if, if, if we're all pretending that there's nothing wrong. Um, so forgiveness starts with saying something is badly broken or something has gone badly wrong. Um, and either I or somebody else needs to change that. And the forgiveness process um, is about recognizing that we don't want to continue going round and round the kind of revenge cycle of you did that to me, so I'm going to do this to you and then they'll do that to me and I'll do it back again. But actually escaping that, that revenge circle. And that's actually what forgiveness looks like. It's getting out of the end, endless spiral of revenge. Thank you. That's, I should be really interested to see how your different uh, faith uh, theological teams get on with that, because there's such different understandings of forgiveness between Judaism, yes. Christianity and, yeah. and, and Islam. And, the, and I could see some really interesting fruit from, uh, you know, being able to engage with that difference. So, yeah. Yes. And let and me just ask the way we're doing that. Sorry, well, just to say, part of the way we're doing that is through scriptural reasoning between the yeah. traditions, because, of course, that helps flesh out all these differences. So. Yes, yes. Um, the one, the one perhaps that uh, 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 I'd like to just ask a little bit more about is the lament door. Because um, th uh, there's been quite a lot, a lot of written in certain Christian theological circles recently about lament, hasn't there? But it's not a word in very popular usage, is it? So No. And again, you're picking on the best one, Simon. Thank you. Because that was the only, that was the other habit. We had the longest discussion around naming it. Um, uh, the idea of lament is naming the wrong. Um, a bit like I said, the process of forgiveness starts by recognizing there's a wrong. Lament is naming the wrong and literally getting it out of your mouth, yelling, shouting, however you naturally want to um, release the uh, response you have to that wrong. That's what lament is all about. And uh, we, we couldn't come up with another word that expressed adequately that need to release the, um, the response, if you like. And we also wanted to tie it to not just releasing that response in a vacuum, but releasing that response, A, before God, if that's relevant to your tradition, um, and B, uh, to articulate it in the presence of others, even those others who've caused the harm in the first place. Um, and that seems to us to be a critical starting point of any journey of reconciliation is naming those wrongs and, and naming them publicly. Yes, yes. So some of the truth recovery things that have been very yes. well developed in different contexts, truth commissions, very storytelling yes. initiatives, etc. That, that, that in a way would be a, a form of lament. Uh, yes, it yeah. would. Yeah. yeah, and and actually, it's really interesting if you watch some of the videos, for instance, from the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Actually, the the vocalising, the uh, and you know the passion with which people speak, and uh, which is something Tutu very much encouraged, wasn't he? He didn't want it to yes. be a polite court of law. Uh, that's yeah. a, a good a good example. It also it also um, holds the promise of some quite uh, sort of noisy sessions with reconcilers at Rose Garden. Yeah, and we have them particularly in in. A non-Western context, uh, there is literally wailing um, yeah. 
beating one's chest, crying, uh, shouting, yelling, some of that is part of that process. Uh, and so I suppose in those kind of spaces, you need, um, you need to have those facilitators who can hold that space. Um, yeah. And they don't hold it in any kind of uh, boundaried way necessarily or chain you know, uh, rules way, but they hold that space so that people feel safe to release their, um, their emotion. And then to move on and not just be left in that space. Yeah. So one of the things you expect of your reconcilers then is to be good facilitators. Is that Absolutely. a core skill? Yeah. Yes. And, and actually facilitation is almost the, the most important skill because it's about how do you open and hold a space for reconciliation? Um, and the space, the physical and the kind of um, emotional and environmental space in which you meet is critical to any process of reconciliation. For example, it, 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 you know, if you're meeting in um, a place that's comfortable for some and uncomfortable for others, it's not going to be setting up the right mm -hmm. parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're meeting in a place where, uh, for example, some parts of the world where women don't speak so publicly w with men present, um, you're not going to have a, a, everybody having an equal voice in that space. So you need to always be aware anthropologically, culturally, religiously yes. about the form of dress people are wearing. Um, but all those kind of unspoken uh, guidelines are really important to a, a reconciliation space. Yes, yes. There's a lot more we could talk about here, I think, because uh, we share an interest in how you create these spaces. And yes. in particular, what you expect of the people who uh, are allowed to lead them if you if i can put it that way yes um and and uh, uh we we uh, uh part of our master's program we have a practical course called practical build uh, bridge building um and uh, it's very very interesting to see how people approach can approach facilitation in very different ways uh, and and their gifts their personality their knowledge uh, and their um their ability to understand i think it kind of being a facilitator is poses some quite interesting intellectual challenges sometimes to work out what is happening. Um, yeah. So, so but there are no fixed rules for that, are there? You can't simply write there a facilitator's are... job description, in my experience. No, but one of the best um, guidelines, I suppose, is that the best facilitator is one who nobody realizes was there, because they've played a, a quiet but incredibly effective uh, role at allowing everybody else to have a voice. And they've eased the path where one, one side seems to be dominating the other. Um, but all of that is happening under the surface, if you like. It's like a holding space. Yes. Um, and at the end of the, the facilitation, if the two parties think they've done it, that's a brilliant outcome. And they forget to thank the facilitator. It's sad for the facilitator, but that's a good facilitator. Yes. <laughs> Sarah, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I think we should probably bring this to a close because we, we've gone beyond our allotted time, I think. But, um, but that, um, uh, congratulations for getting Rose Castle to this stage. It's, I remember when it was first mentioned a few years ago, and it felt like a very ambitious undertaking. And the fact yes. that it's now uh, working, and the fact, you know, we know some of the people, you know, some of our students are people who yes. who, who we share, yeah, they're at Rose Castle and with us. And, and please, uh, will, you, will you just say everyone is welcome as well to come? If anyone's on their way to Scotland or they're heading up to the north, come visit us, and uh, we'd love to, to welcome any of you. I just have one final question, which is, um, was it ever the ambition of Rose Castle to be a place where 
people from different sides of international conflicts might actually meet? Or is that... Yeah. yeah. Quick answer is absolutely. We have refurbished it as a place where uh, people from very different contexts will... Um, will feel welcomed and uh, will feel that um, they fit in that space in, in, as a place of reconciliation for them. Um, and, and in fact, the long-term aim is not only to train a generation of reconcilers, which is our big vision, but it's for those reconcilers to be able to bring some of their own conflicted communities back again uh, in order to take them through their own reconciliation process, whatever is appropriate for them. So absolutely, yeah. Yes, yes. And, and actually, I can see you could start with uh, the Church of England. Uh, it's yeah. been, it's <laughs> yes, been an Anglican, sure. Anglican palace, <laughs> and there is so much conflict, not only present in the Church of England at the moment, but coming down the road as the Church yes. of England has to face major change. And yeah. certainly in Bath and Wells, where I live, uh, there's so many uh, examples now of where the, the lack of a space... Uh, a dignified yeah. space where people can talk honestly about difference and disagreement uh, is, 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 is really dangerous, actually. It, it creates a kind of acid that eats away at the fabric. So, so yes. um, uh, I, 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 I really hope that you're able to move in, in that direction, not just with the Anglicans, but with, with the rest of the no, world. With well. everyone. And, and yes, the Church of England absolutely needs that reconciliation. I mean, our... our prayer if you like for rose castle as a space is that anyone uh, who comes through its doors will feel they're wanted on their own terms they're not coming through those doors to be persuaded otherwise um, but they're wanted on their own terms so we've got this huge emphasis on hospitality welcoming the guests yeah. which straddles all our religious traditions um, and that's that's central right down to any staff who are working in the castle uh, or in the gardens indeed so yes Sarah, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And as I say, you know, congratulations for getting uh, Rose Castle so far in such a relatively short space of time. And all of us at Winchester wish you luck with it. And we really look forward to continuing a relationship with you. And I can see because we have so many issues in common here, there are, yes. we, there are lots of fruitful conversations and things we can do together in future. So and I really lots look to learn from each other, for indeed, sure. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon, ever so much. Bye. Thank you.